This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Ross Gay did an amazing, well, he's done amazing books for a really long time. But The Book of Delights is probably the book that everyone knows best at this point. And it's a collection of essays that he wrote as an exercise, almost one a day for an entire year. I think there were a couple of days you missed, if I remember correctly. And now, though, he's following up The Book of Delights with inciting joy. And I am so excited to talk to Ross about this. And I'm really excited for you guys to be able to eavesdrop on us because I think we're going to go some really interesting directions with this conversation. And Ross, before we really get into things, though, can I ask you what brought you joy this morning? Well, I had a lovely conversation um, with my friend Vaughn, and that was important. But it's also this time of year, the um, God, like I'm just looking at my window and the light through this pear tree across the way, which didn't make fruit because the I think there must have been a late frost or like a heavy rain or something blew most of the blossoms off. And it's like a, it's actually like a, a gathering place, but God, the light through it is just wild. That's such a great way to start the morning. I really, I appreciate that. It's a really nice moment in New York too. Oh, good. Really clear skies and we've had terrible rain and whatnot, but now yeah. it's just, everything is evening out. So I think we need to talk about how we talk about joy and how we think about joy. And you bring this up and you call it the first incitement which I really like. I like this 14 incitements idea, 14 essays. But, you know, there are a lot of folks in the world who think that joy means the absence of sorrow, the absence of grief, the uh, grief, the absence of loss. And I don't see it that way. And I know you don't see it that way. So can we start there? Can we talk about redefining joy? Yeah, totally. And that might, and that kind of gets us to to sort of one of the, like, you know, where the book comes from. And mm-hmm. Because I wrote this book, The Book of Delights, and before that, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, a book of poems, um, you know, I've been lucky and I've had a lot of conversations with people about the idea of joy. It comes up a lot. And I write about this in the introduction. What broke my heart the most is that sometimes young people who, you know, because I speak at colleges kind mm-hmm. of regularly and teach, um, would say that they didn't know that they were allowed to write about joy. But it would also come, sometimes the question would be raised and and there would be something like, how can you be talking about joy at a time? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I would just kind of be like, well, you know, many things. What's a time? What, when's it not a time like this? But also, um, what's your idea of joy? You know, and, and it started to occur to me, oh, their idea of joy is like, oh, I got a cool pair of pants. <laughs> or like, you know, the freezer is full, you know, important. But I was like, no, okay. So I realized that that's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about joy... Um, I'm talking about something like what emanates from us as we help each other carry our sorrows, which none of us get out of. We do not get out of our sorrows. So when, when you're thinking of joy like that, it's not like, you know, a, a privilege, <laughs> which is sort of like the question, the implication is like, oh, it's a privilege to talk about joy. I don't think anyone gets out of sorrow. If joy is intimately connected to sorrow and maybe is actually, if, if sorrow is in fact maybe the ground from which joy grows, then it's it's kind of all of our business. You also have this amazing line in the introduction too, where you say, my hunch is that joy is an ember for or precursor to wild and unpredictable and transgressive and unboundaried solidarity. And I think that's something that's really easy to lose sight of, that we can actually find community Enjoy, and it doesn't have to be these expansive, fancy moments. Yeah. It really can be very 
very simple stuff. And I would like more of us to think about that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So part of what you're talking about, though, is grief. I mean, you talk about your dad's death intimately, and you talk about your relationship with your dad. So already early in the book, we're there. You're not separating these things at all. I was thinking about that when I was organizing the book. The arrangement of the essays aren't chrono- chronological how I wrote them. And, but I do think that was one of the first essays that I wrote. But I've been like over the course of the, you know, the year and change, like kind of working on it and revising it, I've been thinking that a good reason to have that as a first essay is precisely what you're talking about, to sort of prepare the ground for like, when we're talking about this, we're not talking, we're talking about a grave emotion, actually. And a grave emotion, you know, implies that the grave, like, you know, a, a sort of a, a common, a common feature of our lives is that we will die <laughs> and who we love will die. So let's start there. Right. That kind of connects us, you know, that kind of connects us. It also shows us where the stakes are, though. I mean, yeah. it's very easy, especially in this day and age, to distract ourselves. I mean, I will get to your feelings about cell phones in a minute, but I happen I happen to carry two cell phones and I prefer to not be reliant on my cell phones. But the reality is, you know, occasionally I'm a giant six-year-old with <laughs> a very expensive supercomputer in my pocket. But it's also a moment where I'm advocating for people to bring short stories back in a really hard way because you can read a short story on your phone and I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this idea of connection and and being able to appreciate sort of what's in front of you. You talk about this quite a lot when you're writing about gardening mm-hmm. and your experience as a gardener. And it it does connect to um, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude and the new book quite tightly because fig trees, mm-hmm. your neighbor's fig tree. This is a really sort of simple mm-hmm. yet not simple because you took clippings from a tree in Philadelphia and somehow got them alive mm-hmm. to Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. And transplanted them as part of a community orchard. And they do deliver a lot of inspiration for you. And they started as little branches in a bucket, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they started as uh, yeah, just stuff out back in Mr. Lau's garden that I didn't mm-hmm. know what they were. Right. And it was my buddy who one day I was probably sleeping over there or something. And I'd never had a fig. I'd go I'd talk about this in the essay. I'd actually li- never had a fig. And he just had them in a colander and he just gave me a couple. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what's that? Anyway, so then I learned like, um, oh yeah, he has fig trees. Mr. La has fig trees out back, which mattered to me only in the in as much as they, I guess they made these things that I was eating. But I wasn't at a gar- I wasn't a gardener at all at that point. And it was years later that when I was starting to garden, and um, that Mr. La gave me some of those cuttings from that tree. We just kept them alive and planted a few of them at this community orchard where just the other day I was uh, walking around and checking on the figs, which are, you know, taller than me. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, That's so great. Mm -hmm. I also didn't know that figs could even grow in sort of the mid Atlantic, you know, uh, yeah. Bloomington's sort of on the same. It's roughly Philadelphia, right? If I'm doing my geography correctly, I had no idea. I just thought figs were warm weather plants and i was just i know i know yeah i know that's where they come that's where they come from but like you know people move around and they take yeah. what they love with them and yeah but let's dig into this idea of privilege for a second because i mean you talk about it in the context of gardening too like there are people who look at gardening as a very frivolous thing and you could argue as you do that you can see gardening as sharing and you can see it as mutual aid and you can see it 
um, as also a practice. I mean, gardeners are really a kind of specific person. And I say that with a lot of love because I have a lot of gardeners in my life who are very, very good at what they do. And it doesn't mean that the gardens are fancy and formal. It just means they know their stuff and they know how to connect with other people. So can we just sit with this idea of privilege for a second? Because again, you know, joy is privilege, really? You know, in that essay, particularly, I'm sort of, you know, I'm sort of addressing a reader, like a question that might be arising for a reader, which is a question, you know, that sort of a reasonable question to, to tussle with, that maybe having access to a garden is, is a privilege. And my suggestion is that not having access to a garden or not having access to clean air or not having access to clean water or not having access to not being bombed or not having access to, you know, um, a place to sleep is a disprivilege. And, and we often sort of, you know, you know, it's just like how almost like how we talk now, like, you know, I'm privileged enough to have a place to sleep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, actually, no, no, we should all have places to sleep. You know, we should all have a place, um, et cetera, et cetera. We should all be, we should all be cared for. Um, we should all have good food, healthy food to eat. So, and I feel like there's a way that, that, that privileged discourse also actually obscures that fact. It makes it almost um, something that can't be remedied, something that we can do something about. You know, it's just a it's just a privilege. No, actually, you know, what we got to do we got to like fix the pipes. That's what fundamental, it is. <laughs> yeah. Right? No, fundamental rights versus privilege. Like, what yeah. can you expect as a human being in the world? Yeah, yeah. That's that's really what it comes down to. But I love the way you use gardening not just as a metaphor for intellectual and emotional growth. There's the physicality of it too, and the getting lost in the actual work, yeah, which I think is really great. I mean, there's nothing like getting your hands really dirty and thinking, okay, please, can I just not kill these plants, please? (laughs) So after my mother died, I spent a lot of time in her garden, literally with these giant bearded irises and these peonies that were older than me. And I'm just like, I can't kill them. I can't kill them. I cannot be responsible. And I managed to keep them alive for as long as they needed to. But then cut, you know, sort of pulled them out and sent them around to mm. other people. So all of those plants exist in other people's mm. yards now, which I kind of like that bit. Oh I like my that God, kind of I love that. Right? It's kind of yeah. cool. But essays, you pick 14 essays. You're working on these pieces over time. I'm assuming many of them during lockdown and sort of that moment where none of us could really be out in the world. It's not so much that you're talking about time as a privilege, but the sort of the the way time locks us in yeah, and the yeah. expectations of time. And again, these are all sort of labels we put on ourselves. Like no one ever woke up and said, Oh, well, you know, except maybe Ben Franklin, but, <laughs> and I had to throw that in there because you're from Pennsylvania. You're from Pennsylvania. <laughs> and it's like, I'm sorry, I can't Love resist. That. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. But, you know, let's talk about this barbed tether, barbed wire tether. Excuse me. I love this line of yours, barbed wire tether between time and virtue because mm. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like that that essay I'm talking about, the pleasure of of not doing anything. Yeah, right. Actually. And I'm talking about what that pleasure, I think I kind of spin off um, thinking about what that pleasure meant to people like my folks. Right. They had very little time to not do anything because they were captured by a brutal system, right. the brutal capitalist horror show that we live in. <laughs> and so as a consequence, you know, it wasn't like they were able to sort of, 
you know, be on like what I say, my mother was on a more, you know, grew up probably on a more earthly time. She grew up on a farm, right? Um, which surely had all, you know, some industrial components to it, I'm sure. But there was the real fact of like, you know, morning is when the cows need to be milked. Yeah. And, and there are these, you know, and when things are coming into, you know, harvest time and, you know, X, Y, and Z, as opposed to when the person who owns the, the factory or the Burger King or the whatever, where you got to go work, tells you you should be there and for how long and at what compensation and how you will not be getting a, a vacation, you know, on and on and on. I feel like that's a kind of thing that we, we can kind of internalize that absence of time or like the if we do not have time, there's something virtuous about us, even when we might have time. Right. Something, something about that. I think too, freeing up time though, so your brain can wander. Yeah. I think it's so easy to get pulled into things that you don't necessarily need to be. And just to be able to stare out a window and just look at what's in front of you and sort of let your brain wander. I have to say, I created a playlist based on a bunch of the music that you mentioned. And of course that sends me down a rabbit hole, which we'll get to in a second, but it was really kind of wild. And yes, you are correct. The Rufus Wainwright version. Oh my gosh. Isn't that beautiful? Of Hallelujah. (laughs) By far. And I saw Leonard Cohen years ago at the university of Texas. It was just, it was a wonderful thing and it's tiny venue. And he was bouncing up and down on his knees. I remember when he was in his eighties. Yeah. I remember hearing about that. (laughs) And I was just like, I would like to do that. I know. I know. But we think of music as sort of an obvious starting point, music and dance. And you talk about dance too in the book as well. But this idea that, you know, and I'm getting excited just thinking about this playlist because it's a little wacky. I mean, there's <laughs> some Johnny Cash on there. There's, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, there's Nina Simone and there's, you know, Al Jarreau and Dave Brubeck and all of these things that I love. But at the same time, I'd never sort of put them in a single piece, which you do. Yeah in this essay. So I want to talk about music in your life and how that sort of may or may not change, pardon me, the tenor of what you're doing at any given moment. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Oh, um, yeah, I care a ton about it. And um, I'm, I'm listening to music often and I'm getting to deep, very deep grooves with music. And for instance, right now, like I'm sort of in a deep it's been a little while too. It's been like a year where I've just mm-hmm. been listening like hell to um, Aretha Franklin. Oh, wow. Okay. Amazing Grace, actually. Which yeah. Okay. In the book. But at the time I was listening a lot to, um, uh, I wasn't listening as much to this one song that I can't stop listening to, which is um, her version of Mary, Don't You Weep. Um, ah. It's just amazing. But yeah, music is, it feels like, um, I mean, it's many, one of these many things, like, like you said, dance, it's like, it is this thing that we connect so strongly around that. And then in that essay too, like one of the things that I think is, it's an essay about cover songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then in a way, like, I want to see, I'm going to try this out. Um, cover songs themselves, whereas, you know, like, there's something about the cover song that troubles ideas of property and it troubles uh-huh. ideas of, like, ownership. And, and it really sort of imagines, I come to at the end of the essay, that, that, that maybe there's enough room for all of us. Yeah. And, you know, like, the way that we're talking and feeling about music right now, like mm-hmm. when you started saying the songs and my heart got big, <laughs> your heart got big. <laughs> There's something about that that music provides for us too. Like maybe it might be the case that music sometimes makes it, reminds us like, oh, there's room for all of us. You know, there's room for, you know, a lot of music is like, come on in, come on in. 
It's just like a dance floor. Too many people can get on a dance floor. It's a wild thing. Like if it was a if it was a a dumb classroom, we wouldn't fit in. But if it's a dance floor, <laughs> we will get in. And teaching is something that you cover in this book too. And I love some of the exercises that you give your students. Can we talk about those for a second? Because they're very Ross Gay. I don't know anyone else <laughs> who would have come up and they're and they're listed in the book. And I do actually, I was sort of noodling the idea of maybe doing one or two because I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I can actually do this. Oh, and you know, there's the one about writing what 30 plays and 60 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And just a couple of things where I'm like, oh, I get where you're going with this. I understand that we're talking about the dialogue, we're talking about the movement, and you're talking about creating a play in six lines. Yeah. Maybe yeah. five. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, it's that Hemingway exercise, you know, for sale, never used, ba- for sale, baby shoes, never used. Yeah. But I want to talk about the connection to joy and teaching because you have a great story about a kid <laughs> who got the assignment. Oh, you were teaching over Zoom too. And this kid got the assignment because oftentimes we take joy out of places where it's really useful. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me which one you're referring to. So the little boy who's he says, Can I tell you two stories? Do I oh, have to just yeah. stick to one piece? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is leading me to football, my friend. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see where you're going. You see where oh. this is going. <laughs> But I want to talk about this little boy, and I want to talk about how he understood the assignment that you gave him in this yeah, in this yeah, particular yeah. classroom. Yeah, the exercise, it was a simple exercise, and I think it's a useful exercise. We probably spent 10 minutes describing with great precision, great precision, something that you did this morning. Yep. Something that you otherwise would not pay, have even noticed, really, that you were doing. So if it's making your lemon water with salt in it, you know, yep. just describe that. This kid described first, like, you know, um, the water being too cold or too hot in the shower or something. <laughs> and then he described his mother telling him that um, she was going to go back to school. It was over Zoom, you know, and this was a Zoom mm-hmm. visit and there were several classes I could kind of see. So there were like five, maybe or six classrooms. And this kid who was probably like a, you know, like a 16 year old boy, I'd say, as he started to tell it, he just, he just broke down. It was basically like, it seemed like in the telling, it was kind of hard to hear, but it was like that his mother had put him and his brothers first and he was, um, he was so profoundly grateful to her and he was so happy for her to be going to school. <laughs> it was just so beautiful, but, but the story was beautiful, but the, the telling was beautiful because one, he was so moved by it, but two, he didn't conceal how moved he was and he finished the exercise. And I was sort of thinking as I was watching this, I was thinking two things. One, I was like, what's wrong? Why aren't people coming to his aid? Right. You know, you know people are afraid of touching, you know, the, the rules against touching. But I was also like, this child is so just like, is okay. Yeah. Is okay being devastated. Yeah. And then crucially too, just as crucial is that after he was done, he finished his piece. Um, he kind of like sobbed and, and, and labored through it. He sat down and after class, every single child in that class gathered around him and hugged him. They turned into a big, like a ball, like a swarm, hugging this child. And oh my God, it was like one of the most beautiful things I ever saw. And if that isn't one of the best examples in the book, and there's so many examples in the book though, of how joy and sorrow, you cannot separate them. You don't get that 
sort of transcendent moment, especially with kids, because kids have so much more language than, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I are roughly the same age. And we did not come up with that kind of access to language or our emotions. So the idea of a 16-year-old boy who's comfortable enough to be like, well, here I am. Yeah. Here I am. You are going to feel all of the feels with me. Yeah. Yeah. And his peers know what to do with that. Yeah. They totally know what to do with that. I'm sorry. When I was coming up in school, and I had a really great school experience. I really, I loved school. I really Mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. But the idea of a classmate crying over the pure beauty of a personal moment in an essay, Mm -hmm. it, no, No. it it just, it doesn't. And I had some classmates who were really talented writers and whatnot, but no, no, it was just never going to happen. So I love the idea that we're in this space now, right? Where we can interrogate what joy feels like and what it means and where it can take us. It's not yeah. just a poster you stick on your wall yeah. with like a baby koala or something on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of yeah. those motivational yeah. posters where it's like, yeah. yay, joy. It's an action. Joy, Choosing joy is an action. And I well, think- it's like The thing about that story, that there's mm-hmm. many things. One is that the kid's sort of being just ripped apart um, with, with his mother and, you know, devoted at his mother's devotion. And also when he was ripped apart, the way the, sh- the class knew to come, he said, it's okay, you can be ripped apart, but we're going to help you. We're going to carry you through it. You know, We're going to be with you as you do it. Um, which to me, like growing up, um, I went to a fine school. You know, I grew up in a certain kind of way. Like if I had done that, I would have had to like break something. You know, I would have, and, and, and I know when I knew. <laughs> Would have been okay with that. You know, we would have rather ripped our eyes out than to cry. Yeah. So yeah, what a moving, powerful example of, of, of something good. You've written a book-length poem about Dr. J, <laughs> Julius Irving, the basketball player, which is pretty great. You. You've written quite a lot about your experience of football, and you were a very serious football player through into college, yeah? Through college, yeah. Right? Okay, yeah. through college. And now you're an award-winning poet. A critically acclaimed essayist. It's not necessarily the trajectory that everyone would have seen for you, but you do dig in. And actually, the essay where you're really talking about football and your experience of football, you're also talking about coercion and breaking people down and building them back up and how you find yourself in that space. There are so many diversions and so many footnotes, and they're very, very long. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about the structure of this piece for a second, because your footnotes are very deliberate. Yeah. Your diversions are very deliberate. Mm-hmm. But I think it's an interesting way to cover a lot of ground. And some of it is masculinity. Some of it is sort of groupthink and belonging and whatnot. But you really do sit with a lot of discomfort mm-hmm. and you own it. I was sort of wondering how you got to that piece the way it exists on the page is really it's, what I'm yeah. It's because it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. You know, it's actually that piece comes about as a kind of thing I'm working on with a friend of mine named Noah Davis. We're writing about we're writing about basketball, writing about that. We were talking about coaching experiences that we have that we've had that were, you know, um, challenging, (laughs) which I understand on both sides, you know, because I've been a coach, too. Right. Um, um, I've been a coach who's done things that now I would not do. Right. The thing that that 
that essay is sort of beginning, it, it starts off because we're trying to think about how is it that, you know, like basically these games are so often a lot of what, you know, there's nice things about the games. They're beautiful. Like, you know, like you go to a pickup basketball court and you have, see how a pickup basketball court is organizing itself and caring for itself. And that's a, a bracketed situation. That's a sort of, that's sort of in a way the aspiration, you know, it feels like the true objective of the, of the endeavor is to train people how to be submissive, how to train people how to be obedient, mm -hmm. how to train people how to neglect their own feelings, mm -hmm. and how to train people to neglect the feelings of other people, among other things, you know. And 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 if if it all works out, maybe a little teamwork too. <laughs> but teamwork never without, almost never, without the adversary. So then once the adversary is taken away, like, is there, is there a team, you know? And I sort of talk at length about this. I talk about Chris Hedges' brilliant book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Because mm -hmm. that is like, it's one of these ways that um, my experience of being an athlete was so often sort of, you know, not entirely at all, but largely informed by like who you're going against. There mm -hmm. has to be an against. And so again, like competition is like one of the, 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 you know, it's your training competition, all of the things that training competition does, which also connects a little bit to the classroom, which the failures of the classroom are very much the failures of, of, mm -hmm. of, of the athletic field. They totally overlap. They do, but we can get to the other side. I mean, that's part of what you're talking about. I mean, especially in, in the football essay, it really is quite a lot about grief. Well, one of the things that I'm sort of, I'm, I, that essay helped me get to, one of the sorrows of being a certain kind of man, quote unquote man, you know, right, is we sort of are taught, and I think, <laughs> I think some of this training, this sort of football training, is just one of a million kinds, is a way to sort of where it happens, but we are taught that there might be a way to be without need. Right. You know, so right. to be a sort of force in the world, an actor on the world, as opposed to someone who is act upon, acted upon to be one who moved, mm -hmm. but not one who has moved. Right. In a way that's almost like, sometimes it feels like, oh, that's the definition of being like a, a dude. It's basically a, fa a fantasy of alienation that we aren't connected to one another and that there might be a virtue in not being connected to one, one another. And there might be a virtue in not needing one another, to be needless. You know, that is actually, as I said that, is a theme I think I realized that it comes to the book. like. Like the garden sometimes is imagined as this place where we can kind of out, get outside of our needs. Like we're not going to need the supermarket. We're not going to need, we're not going to need, you know. But in fact, the garden is a place where your needs get sort of clarified and articulated. And the, you know, a class is the same thing. A football, you know, all of these, they're being a human being. <laughs> being a, it means you are a creature, means you are in utter constant dependence. The moment your your needs are not met, actually, enough of them, you die. <laughs> then we'll satisfy the need of something else, <laughs> like a tree. <laughs> well, there's that. But also, you talk quite a lot about how we're setting up the future yeah. and how, especially the community orchard in Bloomington, which I really love this idea. This just makes me so happy that you guys have this resource. 
you know, everyone benefits, the community benefits. And as you've said in other places, you know, the city benefits too, because someone's taking care of this land now. So the idea that we can, and I happen to live in a city where green space is valued and not just Central Park. um, And we all know the history of Central Park, which is not always the best piece. But at the same time, like we build here with the expectation that space is preserved as well and that there are garden space, like you can walk around Midtown and there are tiny gardens that you're kind of like, I had Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so it is something that we do occasionally get right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the yeah. idea that addressing your needs is also addressing the future and investing in joy is a way of investing in the future mm-hmm. while also being able to live in the here and now. I mean, it's a balancing act. I love that. I love that idea that that in fact addressing the future is a way is a kind of addressing one's needs. You know, and then it's a, obviously it's reasonable and it's the reason we're here at all is because people were addressing um, us as a, as a function of addressing their needs. It's really easy to forget, I think. Yeah. But yeah, that's absolutely right. And one of the things about this community orchard project, just to sort of frame it a little bit, is that, um, it's a project that was started about 11 years ago by someone named Amy Countryman, um, just a, who's a neighbor. She lives like right across the street. One of my dearest friends now. She just, you know, wrote an undergraduate thesis on sort of a food security project, trying to figure out what are ways that, you know, food systems can be more um, built to adequately take care of the people in, in, the, in the towns where they live, et cetera. And she found that, you know, very little of the sort of urban canopy, the trees in, managed by the city are food, food making trees. And that, and so, you know, like a reasonable thing to do, which is an old thing to do also, is to make like common uh, urban orchards or, you know, like community orchards. The city eventually said, if you can show support, we'll support you. We have an acre that you can use and this and that. She had a call out meeting, 100 people showed up, boom, we were on our way. And in like, um, you know, eight, nine months, there was an orchard planted. But one of the things, um, so many things, and it's really one of the most moving and important projects I've ever been a part of in my life. It was a bunch of people who, for the most part, didn't know each other. I didn't know any of these people who got together who labored. I mean, like we were honestly in that first handful of months because we were preparing the ground, we were turning compost, we were doing like a lot of outreach, we were doing all of this, you know, flyering. We were always flyering, like in the olden days where we were hanging posters all the time. (laughs) On researching the kind of trees we got to do, like reaching out to other projects, you know, finding our elders, like blah, blah, blah. Um, cooking, having these long meetings that were where we were making potlucks and like three hour meetings, like a couple times a week often, you know, wild. People had kids, you know, it's nuts that we did. <laughs> we were doing all of this for people we did not know and could not imagine. And as is the case too, like when you're planting trees, you hope that they're going to outlive you. And the trees that were planted have outlived some of the people who were deeply involved in that project. Um, which is, you know, it's both a sorrow and it's a gratitude. We were addressing our needs. And our needs were actually to care for one another and to join each other and to love each other and to come to love love each other by making this thing for people we did not know, who may or may not be us. Such an important idea. And I would love to reinforce that as much as I possibly can, because sometimes as much as it is about us, it's also really super not about us. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. nice to know that there's a world out there. And having gratitude, obviously, I mean, that's how we got the Book of Delights. That's yeah. your gratitude for a year shared with the rest of us. And obviously, this book 
ends with a big hearty note of gratitude, which is pretty exciting. And I have to say, you know, I'm one of those people who gets to go to work and do the thing that I love most. And it's ridiculous. It's absolutely <laughs> the, the amount of pleasure I get out of what I do yeah. on a daily basis. I'm, I mean, I'm giddy. I'm yeah. literally giddy with what I get to do. Yeah, and yeah. I wish other people had that too. And not everyone does for different reasons. And, but I have this wonderful, and I'm not necessarily going to call it privilege. I'm really mm -hmm. not. It's just, mm -hmm. it's my life and yeah. it's, I've worked pretty hard to have this life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do want to talk about gratitude and joy and sorrow and how you find gratitude in the moments that don't feel all that great when they're happening. But like partly we grieve because um, because we love. Yeah. There's a way that our sorrow and our grief is indication not only of a kind of deprivation or 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 hurt, mm -hmm. but it's it is always evidence whether or not I think it's a practice and I think we can help each other do right. this whether or not we recognize it um, is evidence that we have loved. Yeah. And we are, we are in the midst of loving, um, ideally all the time, you know. Right. So, you know, I don't feel at all like any kind of sage that way. But I, I just feel like um, I feel like I'm the witness to many people who in in the most difficult times. Um, you know, and I come from these people. We come from these people, you know, manage to pay very close attention to what. Um, we have. I think sometimes I've been <laughs> wanting to write about my my papa, my dad's dad's long ass prayers at dinner. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. He did these graces right. and they just went on and on and on. And we were kids who, you know, we didn't do that. And the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, he knew what he was doing. He had more of a connection to um, all kinds of things, you know, probably including like a hardship, you know, like hardship generally, or, or even like more of a relationship to probably like, you know, if you eat, it is because of the kindness of all of the confluences that have provided for you the food. Yeah. It may be the case that it was the sun and the rain and you went and harvested the food, you know, and all of the other things that have that. It may be the case that it was some farmers. It may be the case that it came on a train, but you know, it might be the case that someone who was born in 1920 has a, you know, and also has a big certain kind of heart, <laughs> has more of an understanding of like, we're going to, we're going to say grace over this dinner for, it might get a little cold, <laughs> but, but the gratitude is more important than the temperature. Right. You know? right. The grace is more important than the temperature. The grace is, makes it, makes it hot. <laughs> the grace in the community. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not just family. I mean, we can, yeah. we can make families too. It's, oh. I mean, it's one thing if it's, you know, family is, family's complicated. <laughs> yeah, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Did anything surprise you while you were writing Inciting Joy? Many things. I mean, yeah. for instance, the, um, you know, stuff was just happening in my life. Like that mm -hmm. story that you, you, you mentioned that watching that, you know, that just that kid on Zoom, Yeah, yeah. you know, that was just, I was like, oh, that's in the midst of my life, one of the most beautiful moments I've right. seen, you know, common as dead, common as air and as beautiful as anything I've ever seen. You know, people are always doing that. Actually, someone breaks down, people are always coming to them. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't always happen every time, but it always happens. You know, the reason I write is because I have questions and I am trying to either more clearly articulate or illuminate the questions 
or I'm trying to sometimes probably to answer the questions, mm-hmm. which I know will become more questions. Right. But so all of them, you know, the the uh, the essay about time, you know, mm-hmm. I was learning about time and I was learning about too my relationship to time that is very much informed by my folks who, who right. and their and their relationship to time. Um, the 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 essay about grief, like threading that through with you know the football and then my father and thinking yeah. about race and thinking about all these other things in that I could not have anticipated them. Right. The last essay, the gratitude, I was very surprised that I that that essay started became an address to someone who had probably said something about me on Twitter, <laughs> which I don't read, which I just <laughs> I never could have anticipated that. And that that person would in effect sort of be the one Cajoling is not the right word and inspiring is not quite the right word either, mm-hmm. but like it was some collaboration between the two of us that made that essay possible. Can we say inciting? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, inciting is fair, exactly. I think, because I mean, my my moment when I read that anecdote was, oh, that's so disrespectful of you. <laughs> I, I just, I had a moment where I was just like, you don't get to determine yeah, yeah, yeah. what this author is writing about. Like, that's just not for you to say. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. just, dis- I have a, Kind of rude note in my galley. Uh, <laughs> but the idea too, and this comes back to your entire premise for this book, that that joy exists in the world and it's not in a vacuum. Yeah. That it belongs to us, that we can cultivate it, that we can find a way to hold on to it, that we can find these weird little moments that add up in the long run, that it doesn't have to be flashbang and sizzle and it's not no one's creating an opera or you know making a movie out of any of this it's just if we're going to continue to make progress as humans we kind of have to find the joy even when it feels like everything's on fire and the world is a terrible place you know we still have to make jokes well yeah we really do it's the thing is like everything is on fire you know it's never not everything is you know everything is always on fire for some people and that's the thing like I think it's important to remember. And I also think it's important like to remember to the extent that it's possible. And like we have guides and we have teachers for this. So thankfully, to, to the extent that it's possible to walk the earth being like, that person is going to die. They are on their way, you know. And, and, and maybe, maybe even more potently, that person is hurt. That person is heartbroken. Like we are to a one heartbroken. No matter what we are doing or saying, we are 201 heartbroken. At which point, I think we might, we, I think we probably relate to each other a little bit differently. You know, again, to talk about grace, I think it introduces probably a different kind of grace into our lives. And if we're lucky, we hold on to it. Yeah, yeah. And we hold on to it in part by having other people. Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's not just us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're with each other. We're always holding each other. And speaking of holding each other, can we talk about some of the reading you've been doing separate from your own work? I mean, you're a teacher and a poet mm-hmm. and an essayist, and you have lots going on. Um, but you've got to be making time to read, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and partly I'm reading, you know, for this class I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, we just finished this brilliant book by someone named Heather Crystal called The Crying Book. Mm-hmm. We're reading Muriel Rukeyser's um, early, I think it's her second book of poems called uh, Book of the Dead. 
Oh yeah, I haven't oh, thought that in years. Incredible. Yeah, Amakojo is a poet who has a new book called I think it's called The Bluest Nude. It's so good. It's wild. What else? I'm looking at. Um, reading Simone White. Um, she's a poet and, and also kind of essayist. Mm-hmm. Um, has a book called On Or I think it's called Or on Being the Other Woman. I forget titles sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or on Being the Other Woman. That is amazing. I'm also finishing uh, right now. The Philip Lopate has a book about Susan Sontag. I'm just about to finish, um, which I really enjoyed. I really, I really enjoyed that. I was kind of dipping back into her book, mm-hmm. the, Under the Sign of Saturn. Yeah, she has that beautiful. I think it's just such a beautiful kind of elegy of uh, Paul Goodman, the writer Paul Goodman. That essay is so beautiful and so grown. It feels mm-hmm. so yep. necessary uh, to this moment. <laughs> it's all good. So, what's next for you? You know, getting on the road with this book. Mm-hmm. Yep. sharing this book a lot. And um, I am, you know, uh, always writing these new little things here and there. I have, I've just finished a second book of delights. It's been five years. Yeah. And I thought like, in a way, sort of in the vein of like sort of serial poems that I love, mm-hmm. like some yeah. poets like Nate Mackey or serial novels mm-hmm. or whatever, um, or Ann Waldman, like mm-hmm. people write poems just kind of go on. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, it might be interesting to like try to keep doing this delight thing maybe every five years. Anyway, it's been five years. So that'll be the book that probably comes out after this. Um, and that's been very interesting and, you know, plugging away on some poem type things or something, okay. teaching, gardening. Before I let you go back to all yeah. of those things, I really want people to understand that there is so, so much in this essay collection. And, you know, as also a recovered jock myself, it's kind of nice to know that, you know, <laughs> Those of okay. us who were athletes when we were younger, you know, you can you can learn new stuff. There's new stuff. Yeah. What was um, your sport? So I was a hurdler, but oh, I also yeah. played field hockey and lacrosse before that. So I knew my way around certain things. But um, yeah. at the same time, you know, throwing yourself at immovable objects, possibly not the best plan. And I have some funky scars. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. a little bit of damage and some joints that I may have to address later. But yeah. Yeah. it was totally worth it at the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, how do we... Totally like, worth it. Totally love it and all that stuff. And also, like, all the other things to be like, and also, when you are really hurting, can you attend to that? Like, can you, you know, like, all those... <laughs> I feel like, yeah, those of us who have been jocks as kids, like, we might have a little bit more... Or other things that have happened as kids. Yeah. We might have a little trouble being like... Oh, that hurts. I'm going to stop. <laughs> I, I'm not great at reading. I will admit, I am not great at reading pain. Just yeah, like, there are times yeah, where I'm like, I I'm so, what? I, know, I, know. <laughs> I heard myself the other day. I was at a basketball court and uh-huh. I saw a little kid kind of got, didn't get hurt, but I kind of had his feelings hurt. And uh-huh. I was like, you're not hurt, actually, are you? And I was like, it's not my business. Like, I don't know what this kid is. And I was, I was trying to mediate something, but <laughs> it was just stupid. Though I can totally see you as a skateboarder. And I have to say, like, I have no problem falling off of surfboards. I have no problem falling off of skis. And I grew up skiing on ice. And concrete freaks me out. It to- oh, yeah. All I can think of is my parents paid too much for my teeth. Oh. And I cannot, <laughs> I cannot, because when you're not afraid to fall, yeah. concrete is not your friend. It is uh, just not your friend. And I was given a really beautiful deck and I had it built and everything else. And, you know, learning to skate as an adult. Yeah. Oh, consequences are right there all the time. I know it. I know it. Yeah, I know it. Like when I see people 
watch me when I'm on my skateboard. Well, you right. know, like, I know how to ride a skateboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People who aren't familiar with skating, they it's clear. It's like yeah. they know what it is. They're like, wait, you're like that is going to slide out from under. You're going to fall huh. down. If you've skated enough, you're like, yeah, I, usually it's okay. <laughs> I love but, watching the kids who skate oh at Washington God. Square Park and then also down in Tribeca. They're just, they're so great oh my to God. watch. And I'm just like, yep, all I can think of is my teeth. <laughs> mm, can't do it. Yeah, they lose them sometimes. They lose them. Yeah. So I think I'm just going to stick to watching videos and reading you on skateboarding yeah, among yeah, other yeah, things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ross Gay, thank you so much. Inciting Joy is out now. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Inciting Joy. I'm Mark, and I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And I'm Madison, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. We've got a couple of great books to share today. Uh, Madison, why don't you jump in first? Yes, I would love to start off. So when I was thinking of a book to recommend, I chose Film for Her by Orion Carlotto. And I chose this because I love books that incorporate mixed mediums. With this book, you have poetry, short, short stories, and put all together with photos. So I think what this book does is really show how you can look at the past, present, even the future through film, through writing. It's kind of like a visual diary. And one thing I want to stress about this, what I loved, is that it gives you a moment to reflect on maybe moments you've forgotten, even though they're sharing their own moments, which is what I think I really love about this collection is kind of just the taste of life it gives you. And that was Film for Her by Orion Carlotto. Fantastic. That's a great book. And I, I like the point that you made it. It is um, often about those small moments that make up a whole life. Um, everybody has them. And I think Something that showcases that is really lovely. I also chose a really lovely collection. This is a book called How to Love the World, Poems of Gratitude and Hope, by, and it's edited by Mr. James Cruz. I may have chosen this book slightly because Ross Gay, who is featured today, is featured in this collection, but I really chose it because it's beautiful and very, very inspiring. This is an anthology that features some of our most treasured poets and writers. And it's rooted in uh, themes of gratitude, uh, gratitude for what we have, gratitude for what we've been given, and hope for the future. It was written and put together during the COVID pandemic. So it just offers this lovely ray of sunshine that I think everybody could have used at the time and can use to this day. It invites you to practice stillness and reflection and it also includes prompts for you to write some things yourself, as well as some discussion topics that you can share with the group. This book is meant to be savored and definitely shared. So please, please check out How to Love the World by James Cruz. I love Yay. that. Love it. That is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. My name is Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. 
The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.